I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is Play Me, your digital theater. We transform the hottest contemporary plays into bingeable audio dramas. I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Tolley. Welcome back to Play Me in our interview with Amanda Paris, the playwright behind the award-winning show, Other Side of the Game. It's not often that a first-time playwright wins the coveted Governor General's Award for Drama, but Amanda Paris earned it with her debut show. Her journey began when she was sitting in the waiting room of the Don Jail to visit a friend inside when she became curious about the other women waiting there. Other Side of the Game is a powerful examination of young black women as they navigate a world that mistreats them and highlights their work to elevate their communities, support loved ones, and fight unjust systems. Laura, you and I had the opportunity to go to the Governor General's Awards in December of 2019, and we got to see Amanda accept her award. I know that feels like a whole world away, but I remember it was exhilarating to be at Rideau Hall at Christmas time and see this first-time playwright receive such an honor. I got to talk to Amanda about what it was like for her to receive the call, informing her that she won, and how she kept that secret for weeks. And she hasn't exactly been resting on her laurels. Over the pandemic, Amanda wrote the death news for 21 Black Futures, which is available on CBC Gem. Plus, she recently gave birth to her first child. You might already be familiar with Amanda's work. She is the host of three CBC television series, Exhibitionists, The Filmmakers, and From the Vaults. And she also hosted the R&B showcase, Marvin's Room. I caught up with Amanda over Zoom during her mat leave with her new baby. I want to start by asking, because I know when I reached out to you initially, I guess probably in the summer, you were pregnant and about to have a baby. And since then, you you have had a baby. How is it going? It's going. It's um, it's very (laughs) full days. I find myself daydreaming about the times when I was able to sleep in a little bit, but because those days seem to be long gone. Um, And I've spent more time cleaning up poo than I ever thought possible. Um, And also spending a lot of time being an entertainer. Like I never realized, you know, how much babies will inspire you to find your singing voice and some dance moves that you've never done before. And all kinds of nonsense that you do to occupy them and, and keep them happy. But I also love it so much. He's so cute and I'm having a really great time with him. I, I was thinking about you because I've known a, a few people who have given birth um, during the pandemic. And I just remember I have a 14 year old now. And when I had her, it was like a, obviously a fabulous experience, but it is sometimes an isolating experience to be a new mm-hmm. mom. And I wondered what it would be like during a pandemic when you can't have the 
the relatives and the friends and the mm-hmm. baby playdates and all that stuff. How do, how do you navigate that? Yeah, it's been very different from how I imagined it would be if I ever did have a child, uh, you know, just even the pregnancy going to all of the appointments yet. I had to go alone to all of them, right? Because of the pandemic, you can't bring your partner, you can't bring anyone there. I always imagined that when I gave birth that, you know, my family would be at the hospital and you, I was only allowed to have my partner. My mom couldn't be there. Nobody else could be there. No friends or anything like that. And then, yeah, a whole bunch of people in my life that I love and care about have never met my child yet, um, which is super sad. Like I want them to see him in all the stages and phases of his life. Even his, um, my, my husband's mother has only gotten to meet him a couple of times and we were kind of taking a risk doing that. So it's a strange way to to enter into motherhood and to bring a new life into the world. They always say it takes a village to raise a child. And in a pandemic, that really isn't possible. I mean, it's already pretty hard in the kind of society that we live in, but in a pandemic, it makes it even more challenging. Um, but on the other hand, I feel like if, which is a longer story, but if not for the lockdown and for the way that it forced me to slow down, I don't know if he would have come into the world. You know, it really was a time of relaxation. I mean, the first few weeks of the lockdown, not when we realized how serious this was, when it was kind of like you had no idea what was really happening and how long this was going to be. Those first few weeks were a bit of a necessary slowdown in my life. and, And that was when he was conceived. And so, you know, it's kind of a, it's, it's, it's complicated. It's not just hard and difficult. It's also, I think the reason why I have a child in the first place. So that's, that's that's amazing. That's, that's how long it's been that people have (laughs) conceived and given birth to babies. Wow. I know. I know. It's, we definitely didn't think that was going to last, that it was going to last this long. I imagine also um, that it afforded you, even though I know you're continuing to do um, projects, which we'll talk about, but, but the, the, cause there's always that thing with women where, or identities and, and when you have a mom, you're like, well, am I still a, am I still an artist or am I still a productive member of society? And I, I for myself anyway, I found it was pretty easy to slip back into feeling like I needed to do work. Yeah. I think, you know, the, the thing that I think has been easier is not so much the productivity piece, but the social piece that I think I would have been missing if we weren't in a pandemic. So if we weren't in lockdowns, I would have been like, oh, I missed this event or I missed this social gathering, or I really wish I could have gone to this thing, but none of those things are happening right now. So that's true. Uh, I'm not missing out. I'm not having FOMO about like anything. <laughs> I, I'm just, I'm just, I'm nothing's going on. Yeah. So, I mean, the productivity piece, I think I'd already been kind of questioning its place in my life. And I don't think, I think like I, I've needed to slow down and I've, so I'm kind of welcoming the degree to which I can slow down a little bit in the many different projects that I'm constantly doing. And I'm already feeling like in the slowdown, although I'm not slowing down completely because there's a whole other kind of work in being a mom, but in the yes. slowdown from doing the other types of work that I used to do, I feel like my creative mind and imagination are getting sparked again and I'm getting Mm -hmm. all of these ideas and not that I have time to you know activate any of them or to to do anything with them but just giving my brain the space to like play around with new things has been really nice and in the midst of my physical exhaustion from being a mom I feel like my imagination is getting sparked in really cool ways again so I'm not sure when the time will come when I get to, you know, work on any of those ideas and manifest them, but I'm thankful that I'm getting space to 
because, you know, in my day-to-day job, I'm constantly producing. I'm constantly, like, producing episodes for a radio show or producing articles for my column, producing episodes for a television show. And when you're in that constant state of productivity, it can be hard to generate new imaginative things. And so putting a pause in all of that, I feel like, has been able to activate something even in this, like, three months that I've been on maternity leave. It's wow. And it's only been three months. You may be so yeah. young still. He is, but he's already wearing six month old clothing. Nobody oh. told him he's so young. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to start talking to you about other side of the game by asking if you wouldn't mind. Sometimes people might listen to the interview before they listen to the play. So can you tell us a little bit about what that play is about? Sure. Um, other side of the game is about women who support loved ones who are incarcerated or are being targeted by the system um, and various systems uh, that exist in our society, whether it is now or in the past, because the play takes place in two different time periods. Um, specifically, it follows a young woman named Beverly, who is an activist or an aspiring activist, I should say, in the 1970s. Um, and a young woman named Nicole in a more contemporary period who is a young mom. Um, And they are going through different experiences and engaging the world in different ways. But the thing that they share in common is the fact that there are various systems that are limiting and infringing upon their ability to love and to exist in a state of of freedom um, and and to love fully. And so that's what I wanted to explore um, in in their stories, uh, which, as I said, takes place in two different time periods. When I was reading the intro to your play, I, I read that you got the inspiration or the idea came to you when you were uh, visiting somebody who was incarcerated at the Dawn Jail and that you were looking around at the other women who were obviously there to meet somebody. And I, I thought that's such an interesting visual and I can imagine the spark of uh, interest that would uh, come from that. Can you talk a little bit about that moment and and how you took that idea and expanded it into the play? It was quite a number of years ago now. uh, And I was, the Don Jail doesn't even exist anymore, um, but I was sitting in the waiting room waiting to visit um, the friend, my friend who was incarcerated. And when I looked around, I suddenly struck by the fact that nearly everybody around me was a woman. And, you know, it was all different age ranges from all different cultures, but they were all there. And I became so curious about who they were there to visit, how they were feeling in that moment. But it's a very awkward space. It's not really somewhere where you can like elbow the person next to you and be like, hey, so uh, what are you up to here? You know, who are you going to go see? It's, it's a space filled with a lot of tension. Um, but it really did spark a lot of curiosity for me because there's so many there's so many restrictions when you're going to visit someone in a space like that at the Don jail specifically, you couldn't bring in any electronics, um, but they didn't have a locker system. So across the street, there was this convenience store where they would charge you like a dollar to hold your cell phone or, you know, $2 to hold a laptop. And I wondered, did these women know about that? Did they have some other way that they were storing their stuff? You know, the visiting hours are really inconvenient. I think it was like, I might have this wrong in the details, but something like Monday to Friday, 11 to three. And so I wondered, you know, what did they have to do to move around their day? Did they have to take the day off work? Did they have to put their kids through daycare? Did the ones who had their kids, how were they feeling managing having kids there? You know, so I I was just so curious about their stories. And, you know, I always think about uh, these sort of police procedurals that exist. There's a million and one television shows and movies about 
you know, the criminal justice system, but very few of them put these women center stage. Most of the time, the, the storyline is that they'll come in, they'll break down a door and they'll arrest someone and they'll either follow the person they arrested or the person who did the arresting, but they won't follow the woman who has to then clean up the mess that the police made or fix the door that got smashed in. And I thought, how interesting would it be to follow that particular individual? And I didn't get to tell that full story, but that was the spark. That was the beginning, the seed. And I wasn't really sure where I'd go from there, but that was where it began. And when I read that, I'm like, oh, I bet there's like 10 plays in there. Yeah, definitely. Did you get a sense that the women you were seeing, that there was an air of routine, that this was a regular occurrence for them? Or was it like you, everyone was navigating this foreign and uncomfortable environment? Yeah, I think it was a mix. I mean, it's hard to say, like the people that I ended up interviewing weren't necessarily the people that I was sitting in the waiting room with. It was people around me that I knew who I kind of had, uh, who I knew from experience and from conversations had had the experience of supporting someone who was incarcerated. And in that group of people that I interviewed, there was definitely a mixture of those that, you know, were supporting someone who was incarcerated for many years and they were going to these prisons and uh, on a regular basis and kind of knew what it was. And then others who had the experience, it was a new experience or they'd only done it a couple of times and, and they talked about it from that sort of early shock of what it is and what it means and how it feels. Um, the Don jail, it's a jail, it's not a prison. So it's kind of this space that people go to before they are convicted, when they are just charged. And it's supposed to be a place that you don't stay in for very long. But my friend was in there for a few years awaiting trial. And so, you know, there's there's a mixture of people that exist there as well, too. And I've never been inside it, but it's such a creepy looking building. The thought of being housed in there for three years sounds awful. Is it as frightening on the inside as it appears on the outside? Well, I only saw the waiting room and, you know, the space where visitors can go, um, but it definitely wasn't cheerful. (laughs) It definitely wasn't colorful or, or uplifting in any way. And, you know, my friend who was in definitely didn't come out the same person that he was when he went in. That's, that's what I'll say about that. Wow. I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. I think I got a very strong visual when I read that in your play about being in that waiting room and and also reading the actual scenes that take place when the guards are um, interrogating the women about whether they have the right ID or or if they're late and all those things. And I guess I wondered, why did you think that that was an unexplored story, those women that do those things? Was it just it's an area that hasn't been mined yet? Or did you feel that it was a group of people that didn't uh, get represented because people didn't consider them important enough to explore those stories? Yeah, I'm not sure what the answer to the why is. I think, you know, there are there are a million and one stories that get repeated. And then there are a million and one stories that have never been told. And it's really 
interesting when you are able to stumble on one that you feel hasn't received the kind of representation that it deserves. I do recall that when I was in the beginning stages of writing, I went to go see Ava DuVernay's film, Middle of Nowhere. Um, and it's about a woman whose husband is incarcerated and it's a beautiful film, beautifully shot. And I almost stopped writing the play because I was like, oh, there it is. There's, there's the story. This is incredible. I don't really need to do this anymore. But then, you know, there's, there's how many stories about a fam, a parents getting divorced um, or, you know, how many stories about a young woman who has dealing with heartbreak for the first time ever. So why can't there be more than one story about this particular thing? And I, to my knowledge, I just didn't know about many of them and definitely not many of them that are based in Canada and not many of them that are based in Toronto and not many of them that are based with communities that sound and look like the ones that I'm a part of. And so, yeah, it just, it, I'm not really sure why it hasn't been told very often. It could be the fact that certain kinds of women's stories aren't told very often. It could be because if you navigate into the depths of these kinds of stories, it, it becomes inevitably a critique of the criminal justice system and all the people that are forgotten by it and all the people that are hurt by it. And you start to recognize the reverberations of this sort of uh, cycle of punishment you know, there's more than one person that is doing time in these in these instances. Um, and and that becomes a really hard look at our society and the kind of society that we live in. Maybe folks don't want to have that hard look. I don't know. Or it could be that there's a whole round of Hollywood movies waiting to be churned out in the next five years that will challenge me completely and will tell these stories. I don't know. But I just knew it was an interesting story that I wanted to explore. And I mostly, especially after doing the interviews, I started doing the interviews, not really knowing what was going to come out of them. I thought I was in school at the time. I thought maybe I would just write an essay or maybe I would make it the subject of my PhD thesis, which I thought I was going to do at the time. And then it became a play. Um, but either, no matter what form it took, I always knew that because I had asked these women to share these stories, these people to share these stories, and because they had trusted me with them, that then it became a responsibility to do them justice and to share them in a way that maintained the integrity and the sacredness with which they had shared them with me. So that just became the number one most important thing. And what was the the leap for you to make it into a play? Do you have a theater background? I know I know you obviously have an arts background and in, in many different areas, but what specifically um, drew you to to putting those characters on the stage? Yeah, I, I have a, a, I don't have a formal theater background in that I didn't go to theater school, but I had done some acting and I had done some residencies uh, or a residency with Debbie Young. And I'd written um, the, like a, a very rough sort of one person play that got workshopped a little bit, but never got produced. And so theater was always sort of in my mind. And in Toronto, um, theater is where I had seen Black women creating work and getting it produced. I don't see a lot of Black women creating dramatic works for television or for film, um, but I had seen a lot of Black women like Trey Anthony, like Janet Sears, Debbie Young, Wayne Mangesha, Ngozi Paul, uh, just Allison Seeley Smith, just so many different Black women writing, acting, producing, directing for the theater in Toronto. And so it always felt like a, a medium and a space that was welcoming and available to me. Um, and so, yeah, I, so also at the same time in my master's program that I was in at OISE, I was taking a class called Research Informed Theater. And so I did write a paper based on this 
And in the paper, I also decided to include a monologue um, based around the interviews that I had done. And research informed theater, it was, it was a field I was not familiar with until I took the class and it made me realize that I could create a bridge between the academic world that I was in and the creative world that I'd kind of uh, stumbled into as well too over the past few years. I guess the wonderful thing about theater as opposed to TV is it doesn't take all the money and the gatekeepers to go through in the same way that, that you know, if you want to put something up in normal times, you can. But what an accomplishment for you to have sort of your debut play or full play go from not knowing exactly where, where it would go to going on to win the Governor General's Award. What was that like for you? Oh, God. Like, I don't know. It was so shocking. I didn't even know it was submitted for consideration because it was submitted by my publishers. And maybe they just assumed I would know that it would be submitted. I don't know, but I had no idea. And so one morning I woke up and I had these text messages from two of my friends just being like, congratulations on making it to the shortlist of the Governor General's Awards. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, what are you actually talking about? And you could have like knocked me over with a feather. I was so shocked. And when I found out that I won, it's it has to be a secret. So they tell you that you've won and you can't tell anyone. It has to be kept confidentially and they, they call you. And so they called me while I was at work and I work at the CBC. And so I'm surrounded by like journalists and reporters and we're all talking, right. they're all talking, we're, we're working on an episode for Exhibitionist, the TV show that I, that I was hosting. And I get this call and I, you know, immediately jump up from my desk and I kind of run into like a little meeting room. And, you know, I, they told me that I've won and I just sat on the floor and I like cried and like yelled. And then I, you know, wiped up my tears and went back to work and couldn't tell anybody. (laughs) It's such a weird thing. Um, How long did you have to keep the secret for? Um, It was a few weeks. It was definitely a few weeks. Yeah, I definitely didn't keep it from everyone. Like I told my family, like (laughs) my husband and my mom (laughs) and stuff. (laughs) But yeah, Mm -hmm. I couldn't tell my colleagues or anybody like that. So yeah, it was kind of, it was this really incredible moment. I'm so grateful and I'm so, uh, I continue to still be kind of shocked. And, you know, there's always a little moment of imposter syndrome where you're like, are you sure? Did you actually read my play? Like, this is the one that you think is deserving? Because I read all of the plays on the shortlist and there's just so many great ones. Um, so yeah, it's a huge honor and uh, of course, like so affirming and um, yeah, it just made me feel like I have a place in this industry, even though I didn't go to theater school and even though I lack a lot of the formal training that so many folks have. And even though I don't do it full time, I kind of step into it alongside you know, my, my other work but I love it so much. I do love the theater so much. And so I'm, I'm very, very grateful. Um, Chris and I actually were uh, at the Governor General's Awards the night you oh. won. <laughs> and I feel like it's the last time I wore like heels and a dress. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. And, and I think, wow, life is so different on many levels from that night. But it was, a, I thought, just as a guest, a really like exciting evening. So I just can't imagine what it would have been like for you. It w- yeah, it was incredibly exciting. And it, 
I actually got like a custom made tux for the event. I was just going to say, I remember that. (laughs) You looked really sharp. It was really great. But then who had, like, I didn't know that just like a few months later, I'd get pregnant and probably never be able to fit into it ever again. (laughs) (laughs) So jokes on me. (laughs) (sighs) But it was a very exciting night. Very, very exciting. Just back to the play for a moment. You said it both in the 1970s and in 2006. And there's sort of uh, two different stories that have some parallels happening at the same time. And I just wondered why you picked those two eras. It was really interesting to hear. I think I think it was really interesting for me to hear a contemporary Toronto that, that I don't hear on stage um, mm-hmm. as much the language, the dialogue, and also to hear it represented in the 70s with people joining a Black activist movement, which I don't even think of as happening in Toronto mm-hmm. in the same way. Mm-hmm. It feels like an American um, thing to me, but of course it, it it would happen here too. But, but what was the decision in picking those eras? Well, I think, you know, kind of to what you said, so many folks don't know about the activism that has happened and it continues to happen in the city. I think there's a bit more of awareness now, but I, you know, I'd been a community organizer for a number of years and was blessed enough to know some elders who told me a few stories about that period. And so I was always kind of eager to delve deeper into it and to learn more. Um, there's not a whole bunch written about that era either. And so you know, the only way to learn about it is to to talk to people and to find out, you know, those stories. And so I did that. And it was such a gift to be able to sit with folks and to hear more. And there's one individual in particular that I definitely want to shout out. Um, he's a journalist and a poet named Clifton Joseph and kind of a legend in a lot of ways. But he still speaks like it's the 70s. Like he just has all this (laughs) slang in his language that's so amazing. And so I really borrowed from the way that he speaks because I just, it's so lyrical and so rhythmic and um, there's just so much fun in it. And so I borrowed a lot from how he speaks in imagining the the dialect of the 70s. And then in terms of the contemporary, and so in terms of why I picked that era, one, because it's not known about very much and two, because I was one of those people who, very much romanticized and delved deeply into the 70s in the US in in my own like personal and private reading and interest I in my early 20s I went through this phase of just like wanting to read all of like everything Angela Davis wrote uh, reading the autobiographies of Asada Shakur, Elaine Brown, Afini Shakur and just being really fascinated and kind of enamored by this period of activism and and defiance and resistance and then wondering and then so initially when I first started, you know, thinking about the play and I, I started initially thinking about it alongside a poet named Keisha Monique Simpson, we were thinking about writing it at, set in the U.S. And then one day I went to her and I was like, that's not our story to tell. That's not for us to explore. Like there's a whole well of untapped stories here and that's our responsibility. Like that is where we need to focus. Um, and so, yeah, so Canada, it, it had to be. And then keeping that in mind, keeping that sort of sense of urgency around telling our local stories came the contemporary period. And like you said, there's not a lot of theater plays or films or TV shows that portray Toronto with that dialect, with that rhythm, with that sound, that is the sound of my home. Like that's how me and my friends talk. That is how I grew up talking. Um, and I love, and I, and I love when I get to hear it 
captured in some way, shape or form. And the only way that I'd heard it captured in a regular way was through YouTubers. So there are a bunch of YouTube comedians that I saw really capturing that Toronto dialect and I loved it. And every time I would watch one of their videos, I just feel so seen and so recognized and I wanted to transfer that feeling to the stage. And I have to say, it was so much fun writing those scenes, so much fun creating that dialogue between characters. Um, it just felt like I would literally write it and say it aloud to myself in my room and like laugh and be like, <laughs> good one, Amanda. <laughs> um, just because it was, it, you know, it, it just, it feels recognizable and familiar, but also new because I, there aren't too many folks doing it. There are some, you know, shout out to Motion, who has who write, written a couple of plays that really captures that sound. But when I thought about the audience that would see the play, I was thinking about my homegirls and homeboys and just imagining them like seeing themselves and cackling and laughing and making tons of noise in the audience. And that's my favorite kind of audience. And luckily we were able to get that audience quite a few times when it was produced by Cahoots and by Obsidian. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah, I did want to ask you about that because obviously there's a, it's an ongoing issue of a lack of diverse stories on the stage. But part of the reason of for that, obviously, is that the audience goers are not diverse. They tend to be sort of white, middle-aged theater goers traditionally. And so so did your play, I think you answered that question already, but it brought in a, a, a different audience perhaps that would normally go to the theater? Yeah, I was going to say, Cahoots and Obsidian are two theater companies that are really dedicated to creating um, space for stories that connect to a multitude of audiences. And so I was able to tap into their communities really well. And then we just also made an effort to do a kind of outreach that would hit a lot of young people as well, because we felt like this is a play that a lot of young people would really enjoy. Um, and so, yeah, the audiences were were like we're filled with a bunch of different kinds of people, you know, some some folks who are subscribers to these theater companies and come to go to every single play and others that were seeing a play for the first time ever in their lives. And it's really beautiful to see a cross section of folks like that uh, sitting in the audience. And uh, it did create a little bit of drama, though, because I remember um, one critics writing about the fact that you know some of the traditional theater goers were really irritated by the amount of noise the audience was making in response to the story they're like you know trying to shush people and oh dear. Uh, that critic writing you know those those kind of traditional theater goers clearly didn't understand the purpose of this play which is to create space for a different kind of story and a different kind of uh, interaction and engagement and so yeah you know I know one night when two two of my really good friends went they sat in the front row and they cackled and laughed and talked back to the characters as if they were at home watching Netflix. And it was, I was sitting in the back row watching them and it was the most enjoyable experience. Yeah. I, I, I hope that that tradition of being quiet in, in your theater seat and, and sort of a stressful sometimes as an audience member too. <laughs> right. I know, I know also when you're, you're playing, it's on the stage, you know, you want everyone to hear every every word but but I I do like that for the pandemic that things felt like they were maybe loosening up a little bit more the more um, relaxed performances and uh, I think that is a way to help uh, diversify who can come and see a show and not feel intimidated by the experience yeah I mean every show is different and some plays require different things and yeah I definitely understand when a playwright is like I want you you know you spend so much time on the words you want people to hear everything and I did. I do remember going to um, 
a play where <laughs> like an older woman literally like pulled out her really noisy snacks from her bag and was like just <laughs> eating them and like yelling back at the characters at very inappropriate times. And it was just like, can you please calm down? I'm missing the story here. But, um, you know, and other times it, it makes sense to have it and the actors are prepared for it and they, and they kind of know that this is, a, that they enjoy the magic of being here because that's, this can only happen in the theater, you know, it can only happen in this live space, this exchange between audience and, and, and the artists. And since then, and since the pandemic, you've gone on to be part of a really exciting project with Obsidian and CBC Gem called 21 Black Futures. And I watched today your offering for it, the death news, which I found really interesting, really great piece. Can you talk a little bit about the genesis of that project? Yeah, uh, it's it's been a huge honor to be a part of such a an ambitious and big project. 21 Black Futures, it brings together 21 Black, so basically Obsidian Theatre commissioned 21 Black playwrights to write ten minute, a 10-minute piece that would explore the question, what is the future of Blackness? And that was kind of our only guidance. It has to be 10 minutes, it has to be a one-person play, and it has to explore that question. Um, and so each playwright kind of went off to do their thing and, you know, they, they commissioned playwrights from all across the country. And then after, at a certain point, they paired each playwright with a director and a performer that would work and manifest that play. Um, so for myself, uh, you know, I got the call from Mumbi, the new artistic director, um, last summer and it was at the time when you know i was already pregnant and i was telling myself okay that's it no more new, no new projects you gotta mm -hmm. slow down this is a lot and i i didn't have the easiest pregnancy either so i was saying no left right and center because i really needed to focus on staying healthy but she came and she said you know this is this, we're going to do this project we want it to be intergenerational these are some of the folks that we've already talked to and we we're thinking about and we would love for you to be a part of it and it just felt like something I couldn't say no to it just it felt so exciting and ambitious and I also had had this kernel of an idea that I've been playing around with for a long time and I didn't know how it was going to manifest again <laughs> um I'd I'd been playing around with this idea of or this this universe and within this universe that I've been playing around with came this little idea that was inspired by an actual death news it's an actual television show that um, airs in Grenada, the island, the Caribbean island that my family is from. Every day, they there's the the death news comes on, and they report who died on the island. It's kind of like a listing of people who died and who they are survived by, and it's not just people who died on the island, but Grenadians that have died abroad as well too often get reported. Um, and I found it so fascinating when I went to Grenada and watched it, it, you know, my grandmother was like, oh, oh, the death news is on. And I was like, the what is on the death news? And, you know, people literally stop what they're doing to sit down and watch it. And it's not considered a sad thing or a morbid thing. It's more just like a fact of life and a way of acknowledging who passed away. And then it becomes an excuse to tell stories about that person and what you remember about them and who, who they're survived by in their family and, and, and all these sorts of things. And it's, it's a very interesting ritual um, that I've been fascinated with for a while. And I started to imagine what would it be like if there was a death news in, in Canada or in North America. And, you know, from there, it just kind of spiraled out. And I, began, and I began thinking about a death news specifically for Black folks. And before we started recording, we were talking about 
you know, good things that were happening at this unique time. And you talked about that, that being an unexpected opportunity and that you weren't a purist for theater. And, and just having her, heard you say that, I really thought it was a, a wonderful hybrid of theater, of seeing the empty theater, of seeing the stage. Mm -hmm. And yet it is so cinematic. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the idea behind bringing a, a theater piece and filming it? What, what, went, what went into the writing of that? Well, for me, I, I, yeah, it was a very interesting thing because I, I, you know, even though it's kind of packaged as sort of a short film, it's still supposed to be theater. And mm -hmm. so with that in mind, I was really interested, like I love one person plays and one of the things that I love about them is the transition between characters. And so I wrote it thinking about one actor transitioning between his characters. And it was interesting because when the director, Charles Officer, first read it, he was wondering if one actor was going to play both characters um, because I guess he was still thinking about it in a film sort of way. But in theater, of course, it would be one actor playing right. multiple characters if they wanted to. And so, um, but, the, with the, but because it's film, you have an opportunity to do things you can't do live on stage, like costume changes right away or, you know, different shots and different angles. And that creates new, a nuance that you don't normally have. You can interject it with interesting um, moments of motion and you can change the color and the lighting to, 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 well, you can also do that, sorry, on stage, but you can change certain things in terms of the mood in, in a really fascinating way. You're literally controlling the gaze. You're literally controlling how a, a moment is framed and how the audience is going to see it. And I think that Charles, in his brilliance, did such a great job with that. And then Lavelle Adams Gray is just an actor that I've been a huge fan of since I saw him in Soul Pepper's production of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And I knew he had the capacity that he works within both theater and film. And so, you know, finding an actor who's able to give you the sort of subtlety that is is necessary for the camera, but then also tap into something big, which is what you want for the stage. Is it's it was really just a magical find. And I'm really happy to to have him. And then in terms of like not being a purist, I think part of why I'm not a purist is because I was born in England and my most of my family is still there and they never get to see my theater work. You know, I haven't unfortunately ever been able to bring a play to London yet. But this but they all got well, I shouldn't say they, they, there's an opportunity for them to see this. It's geo-blocked right now, but it's on, it's caught on film. There's going to be an opportunity for them to see this. And that to me is so exciting that I get to share this with people beyond those who can physically make it into the theater. And, you know, as a, as a black female playwright, I often think about uh, the ways that the works of black women get forgotten uh, throughout history and in this country and theater is magical because it's temporal and because it's ethereal. But as a black woman whose work can easily get forgotten, that also becomes terrifying. And so, you know, it was always my goal with other side of the game that it get published because that felt like a way for me to, to me for it to exist for a longer period of time than just being produced. Like it was really, really important for me that it exists in book form. And then this particular project is so beautiful because it now exists on film in a way that goes, that can can last a little bit longer as well too. And I guess that's, that's part of why I'm not a purist. <laughs> <laughs> that was Laura's interview with Amanda Paris. To listen to Other Side of the Game, subscribe through Apple or Google Podcasts or the CBC Listen app. 
or by going to cbc.ca forward slash play me. And while you're there, please consider rating and reviewing us. You can let us know what you think of our podcast by emailing us at playme at cbc.ca. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at playmepodcast or Twitter at Theatre. We'll be back next with The Gripping Between the Sheets by Jordy Mand. A working mother with a special needs child discovers a devastating secret. Her husband has been engaging in a torrid love affair with none other than their young son's teacher. Until then, be sure to check out our entire collection of plays turned audio dramas available for free on the Play Me feed. Stay well. Play Me is produced by Laura Mullen and Chris Tolley in partnership with CBC Podcasts. Special thanks to our CBC producers, Fabiola Melendez-Carletti, Cecil Fernandez, and Tanya Springer. The executive producer of CBC Podcasts is Arif Narani. The senior director of audio innovation is Leslie Merklinger. Play Me is funded by the Canada Council for the Arts and the Ontario Arts Council. Play Me is an Expect Theatre production. For more information about our plays, please visit playmepodcasts.com. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.